Uh, let, let me pray. Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, we come before you. Uh, we want to be in your presence today. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would use me. Uh, help us to approach you with uh, a real humility that your word would uh, shape us, mold us, grow us. God, even if these are things we've heard before, like Ty said, God, I pray that you would refresh us, renew us. Help us uh, go away from today with a renewed commitment to follow you, to give you everything, uh, and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, I was joking with the guys this morning. Tad's gone, so we can do whatever we want, right? So this will be fun. <laughs> um, no, my name's Jason. I'm a pastor here, which still feels really, really weird to say, um, but I'm going to keep saying it. Um, but yeah, when people come up to me and they're like, hi, pastor, I'm like, oh man, that feels really, really odd. Um, but I believe it's what's, it's what God has called me to do. And, um, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. So, um, so you will be teaching, seeing me teach more regularly. I don't know how regularly, uh, one of my main focuses is the discipleship houses. I really, I believe strongly that God, um, wants to use those in the lives of broken people to really push people to be that structured environment. So I really am passionate about those. Um, I want to give you a little preview of where we're going as a church. This is, I, I'm excited by this, but a goal that we had um, is that we would get to the point where at least every other week, someone else other than Tad is teaching, both for two purposes. One purpose is so that Tad can be a little bit more freed up to do some of the things in ministry that he wants to. He wants to have an impact in Africa. He wants to have an impact with some of the guys in Kansas City, things like that. Um, and just when he's got to teach every week, it just kind of is something that is in the way a little bit. So he wants a little bit more freedom, kind of like to just go to Africa randomly, you know, things like that. Um, and then another one is to really give other people, including myself, more of an opportunity to learn how to teach uh, and, and things like that. So as a group, you'll see different people up here once in a while teaching. So we're, we want to get to the point where we're doing that every other week. We're not there yet. That's all right. So we figured a good way to do that would be to go through a book of the Bible. So we're going to be going through uh, the book of Mark together. So every other week, uh, you'll get some of the book of Mark. And then whenever it's Tad's week, Tad will just do what Tad does and and it'll be great. So yeah, I'm excited for this. Um, so as you can see, Mark, uh, I think the main point of today is who is Jesus and how are you going to respond? Who is Jesus and how are you going to respond? And what I'm going to do is give you um, an outline of Mark to kind of help frame your thinking um, so that as we go through Mark, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. I'll give you some background information. I didn't want to spend the whole sermon on that. I felt like that could just be too much intellectual stuff, but hopefully I give you a few helpful things. And then I'm going to uh, tackle a bit of the first section of chapter one. Um, so yeah, think about who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? How are you going to respond? So hold that, hold that in your mind. But first, we're going to do a few uh, details about Mark. Let's see if this works. There we go. Some fun facts. Okay. So who wrote Mark? Uh, the Bible tells us, if you open up your Bible, the book of Mark, it says in the title, it says Mark. Um, but Mark doesn't actually say that anywhere in his, in his writings, like, like a lot of the letters do. They say it from at the beginning, uh, who wrote it. Um, so how do we know that it's Mark? Um, as you can imagine, in our modern day, when the Bible's attacked in, on various fronts, this comes up a lot. The authorship of Mark, Mark the authorship of other Gospels. Uh, Bart Ehrman is an example who's attacked this. Um, but without getting too far into it, uh, I really want to submit to you, the authorship of Mark is, is actually pretty quite easy to prove and kind of foolish to try to discredit it. There's external sources and internal sources that just make it pretty evident who wrote, uh, who wrote it. Um, just to name a couple of the external, so people in history, some of the early church fathers 
point back and look and say, this is, this is Mark's writing, um, and he's writing from the perspective of Peter. So who, who knew that? Who, who knew uh, Mark was written by Mark, but it was, it was Peter. It was Peter's perspective is what he saw. It's what he remembered, things like that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I think that's awesome because Peter's one of the big, big dog disciples. Um, so some of the, I'll just list some of them. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian. Uh, some of these guys actually mentioned in their writings the, uh, the Mark wrote Mark and it was what Peter taught. They use phrases like, from the beginning, it's been uh, seen this way. And um, that the gospel was written by Mark who traveled with Peter Peter was the main source, and he used Mark to help improve his Greek. Um, so there's a lot of sources like that. That's external. Now, there's some good internal data as well that helps us associate it with Mark. Um, first of all, every, a lot of the copies that we have actually have that title at the top, that it was from Mark. Um, Peter, it's interesting. He's referenced in Mark more than any of the other Gospels. So it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of clear. It might be from his perspective. Um, and then there's a lot of like geography that Peter would have been familiar with that Mark writes and seems very familiar with. So there's a lot of these pieces. And as you put them together, you can be pretty confident uh, Mark wrote it. John, John Mark, he also went by that as well. So it's very credible. Um, he used Peter as his source. So next thing, um, when was it written? Um, that's that's kind of helpful to know, right? Because you have all these events, uh, how long, how much time passed between when the events happened and when Mark wrote them down. Uh, before I get into that, the date of Mark, um, it really wasn't much of a debated issue until more recently when this thing that's called the synoptic problem became in, in the spotlight. So what is the synoptic problem, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. It, synoptic basically means they're seen together. They kind of, If you've read through all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've realized and recognized Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of very similar. But then John's kind of way, way, way different. Very theological, uh, John is. Um, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, very similar, seen together, synoptic gospels. The synoptic problem, or I actually like to, I don't, I don't really think it's that big of a problem. I kind of like to call it the synoptic fun fact. The synoptic problem is that there's a lot of overlapping material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How do you account for all that? That's the synoptic problem. In fact, roughly 90% of Mark is also in Matthew and Luke. So here's a couple uh, possible ways to look at it. Um, one is that either of the authors took one of the gospels that was written before and used it as a source. They're like, oh yeah, I remember that. I'm just going to copy it down because I was going to write it, but it's already written. So it's easier to do that. Um, or maybe they took it and they edited some of it and put it in their gospel. That's fine. They're just using it as a source, right? Um, or... Um, we just don't really understand the, the memory aspect of that culture back then because we don't operate that way. Everything's on our phone. We look up everything. It's possible that the memory aspect, the way they told these stories when they were together, it implanted it so much in their head, all of them really remembered very similar things. That's, that's a possibility. So um, something to think uh, today, actually, the, the popular opinion is that Mark was written first, the first one, and then Matthew and Luke copied and used Mark as a source. When they're putting together their gospels, they had Mark right there and they used Mark as a source. That's a possibility. Um, others think Matthew was written first and uh, Mark and Luke borrowed from Matthew. Valid. Um, or the memory idea could be valid that they really didn't do that as much, but they just all remembered it very clearly. That's valid. So I actually think Matthew was written first. A lot of people think Mark was written first. There's a lot of early church fathers that mentioned that Matthew was the first of the gospels. Uh, but either way you look at it, it doesn't really mess with the validity of what 
each of these is saying, right? It's just some interesting information, which one you think's first. It also helps us understand what time period each was written. Because if you have Matthew written, there needs to be a little bit of time for Mark to use Matthew as a source, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Most people, like you see on the screen, should have hidden those first and then gone into them, whatever. Uh, 50s or 60s, 80s. So you think 20 to 30 years after uh, Jesus died, roughly. Um, so yeah, cool information. Um, all that to say, depending on what your view is, it doesn't undermine any, any of the actual truth claims in the gospel. Um, now, some think Mark was penned, uh, or penned this gospel when he was in Rome with Peter, possibly. That's a possibility. Don't, I don't think you have to believe that. Uh, and then who did Mark write to? It's kind of unclear, but um, some think he just was specifically writing to non-Jews, uh, people who weren't of the Jewish traditions, because in a lot of ways, a lot of times he explains kind of Jewish concepts in his writings. That's a possibility. Um, maybe Roman Gentiles, specifically people in Rome, Christians in Rome that were trying to follow Jesus. Um, so some helpful things as you start going, as we start going through Mark to put together. Um, here's a couple other fun facts about Mark. I think these are really cool because some of those are like the when, where, how type thing. These are some more of the nitty gritty about the book. Um, it's the shortest of all four of the gospels. And it's the most action-packed. There's a kind of a key concept in Mark. And there's a word that he uses over and over again. It's the word for immediately, just over and over again. It's, it's kind of like you imagine like a squirrel on coffee or something, just like to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Got to get there. Got uh, to tell you this thing. This thing happened right after this. Um, it's, in, it's, it's crazy. About 41 times, there's like a quick succession of events that Mark records, like bam, on to the next thing. So you kind of get that idea if you've got a friend who's like uh, who's just all over the place. I had a friend in college who we called the Bumblebee because we would play basketball. And whenever we played basketball, you'd, he was just all over the place, man. You think you'd have a rebound and nobody was within yards of you. And he would just right in, grab the ball. And you're like, where did you come from, man? So kind of, kind of like that. That's how Mark is moving really fast, uh, fast paced. So um, John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. We get that. We see that from Colossians 4.10. Um, so some kind of cool connections there. Um, around 40% of the gospel focuses on the events of Jesus's death and the events leading up to Jesus's death. So you can tell Mark's writing this. He's like, what am I going to put in there? Obviously, the more stuff you put about a certain event, that's, that's an important event, right? So he really focuses on the events leading up to and including Jesus's death. <laughs> Themes in Mark, uh, Mark really stresses the words, or the works, rather, the works of Jesus, the actions Jesus did um, over the words. He has a lot of good words in there that Jesus did. I'm just saying he stresses the works. If you've read Matthew, Matthew has like five big like sermons, big teaching sections, lots of, lots of things we can look at what Jesus said. Mark really focuses on a lot of the, lot of the stuff that he does. It's really cool. Um showing you Jesus, showing you that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, I think is a big theme in Mark and that he's a promised savior from the Old Testament. Um, we see that from, actually, I think I'll go into that a little later when we look at the outline. Uh, another theme, Jesus is called and refers to himself a lot as the son of man in Mark. It's really interesting. And that's referring back to, there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter seven, and I actually wrote it down to read it. It's really cool. Um, Daniel chapter seven, he's getting a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came as one like a son of man. 
And he came to the agents of days, that would be God the Father, and presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So you've got this figure, it's like a son of man. And he's going to be given all this stuff. And who, who could actually be given all that stuff if they were just a man? It doesn't make sense. An everlasting king, kingdom, all languages, all people shall serve him. The kingdom will not be destroyed or not pass away. Like These things are very everlasting uh, things. And it makes a lot of sense looking back that that's talking about Jesus, right? So theme, big thing you'll see, Jesus refers to him as the son, himself as the son of man. There's this interesting section in Mark 14 near the end where the high priests are questioning Jesus. If you remember, Jesus got arrested. He's going before them. They're trying him. They're trying to find any way that they can get this guy nailed. Um, and the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the anointed one? Are you the son, are you the son of the blessed, blessed one? So are you this figure we know who's coming, who's divine? And Jesus says, I am. And then he, he doesn't say he's the son of God. He says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So it's interesting. He used that term. You kind of think son of man kind of seems very kind of physical. Maybe it's showing his, uh, that he's uh, a man. He's, he's, he's got some humanity, but there's, there's a lot of uh, meaning into that phrase that shows that he is divine. He is God. Um, I was going to try to give you a simple outline to kind of hang your hat on. Um, this one is very simple. I think it's, uh, I think it encapsulates it. You could add a lot of details to this if you wanted. Chapters one through eight in Mark are things Jesus did as the Messiah. He's got a lot of healings, casting out demons. Next week, um, Matt is going to go a lot more into a lot of, of the miracles Jesus did in chapter one. And then in chapters 11 through 16, it focuses on events leading up to and the suffering uh, and death of Jesus on the cross. So as you see, a lot of Mark is about that specifically. There's a lot of uh, key statements sprinkled in throughout Mark, and they're all really focused on who Jesus is. Like I said, the theme, who, who do you say Jesus is? What are you going to do about it? There's all these like uh, throughout the whole book of Mark, these specific statements. The first one we're going to go over today is God the Father actually validating who Jesus is and saying, this is my son. Um, the second one is in Mark chapter 8, and this is right in the middle. It's really cool. Um, I'm going to read it. So Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus went on with his disciples to Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So he kind of wants to get a feel for it. And they say, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. So there's like all these random opinions about who Jesus is, right? And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That is the anointed one. That's referring back to the word for Messiah in Hebrew. You are, you are that promised one. And Jesus strictly charged him not to tell anyone. So Peter had it figured out. And one of the things for us today is, do you confidently know it like Peter does? right? Like if someone asks you, who's Jesus? There's a lot of opinions even today. They're not the same ones. They're different ones, right? Oh, he's just a great teacher. You know, he says some nice stuff, but who do you say that he is? Because who you say that he is has, has vast uh, impact on how you live your life. So uh, another one in Mark 9, Jesus goes off in the mount, up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and he's transfigured before them. He's showing, showing them some of his glory and there's a voice from heaven that says the same thing. This is my son whom I love. So it's like God the Father validating him. 
And lastly, a super interesting one, Mark 14, uh, after Jesus dies on the cross, there's a Roman centurion that's standing there that says, surely this was the son of God. Like he realized it, and recognized it. Um, so you can see a lot, a big focus on Jesus uh, on, that Mark has, the suffering and death of Jesus. That should tell us it's a big focus, like I said. I think there's a really, there's a really cool progression in Mark. There's the foretelling of the Messiah. He talks about it in the beginning. We're going to go into that a little bit. Then there's the claim that the Messiah is here. Then there's the signs that he's here. And then there's the declaration, God the Father and other people declaring it. And then there's the accomplishment on the cross. That's pretty cool, right? Foretelling, the claims that he's here, signs that he's here, uh, declaration that, that he's here. And then there's the actual accomplishment of it. There's this progression through Mark. So another quick note before, a note before we jump into Mark 1. Uh, a lot of your Bibles, if you look in Mark chapter 16 at the end, there will be, there will be brackets on Mark 16, 9 through 20. And it's just the translators letting you know, hey, we're not sure about this, this section, right? Some of the earliest manuscripts actually don't have that section in them, but some of them after do. So we're not actually sure, was it in there or was it not? And if you read it, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> There's some very interesting things in there. Um I personally am not convinced it was in the original document. Um, I think there's some stuff in there that makes it sound like it wasn't Mark. But it's nice because you can trust your Bible translation because they tell you. Like, they're not trying to deceive you or anything. They're like, we're actually not sure. And if you pull that section out or you add it in, um, it doesn't change any of the big doctrines about who Jesus is. Some of the weird things it talks about in there, since we're unsure about that passage, you would want to look at other Bible passages and see, see what it says about that type of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I find that really comforting that they do that. Okay, we're going to jump into Mark 1 now. I'm going to try to go Mark 1, 1 through 20. We're going to see. That's a lot. Um, it's 11.24. Okay, I would put it up on the screen, but then you wouldn't be able to read any of it. So I'm going to actually tell you to open it up in your Bibles or your phone apps or whatever. Mark 1, 1 through 20. And I just I think it's really powerful just to read a whole chunk. Even though it takes some time, I think it's really good. Help you get the context. So here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Gross. And he preached, saying, After me comes, one who, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the sun or the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Sweet. We did it. That's great. So you, you see, like, immediately, immediately. And then spirit drove him into the wilderness. Immediately, Jesus called Simon, etc. Like, that's, even in this first chunk, that's a big theme, right? Um, it's interesting if you think about, okay, Mark's putting this together. Um, he's going through a process in his brain. Like, why did he leave certain things out? Why did he put them in there? Uh, are good questions to ask. So you notice, like some of the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, he doesn't have a genealogy in there. And maybe that's because he's writing to people that that didn't actually mean all that much to. So he didn't put it in there. Or maybe he wanted to save space. Maybe he knew Matthew already had one if Matthew wrote one before him. So why would he put another one? There's some reasons he could have done it. But you see also when you read Mark, there's so much crammed in to like a few verses. You're like, holy cow. And how is Jason going to cover all these things? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, remember the main point, who is Jesus? How do you respond? I think that's kind of the main theme of Mark, but also the main theme of this little chunk that we're looking at. So here's another helpful way to look at just this section and outline. I'm into outlines today. Um, so uh, verses one through eight, John introduces the prophesied Messiah. Verses nine through 11, God the Father identifies the Messiah. 12 through 13 is the Messiah is tested in the wilderness. And then the rest of the verses, the Messiah begins his proclamation and ministry. And we see the first responses to Jesus, um, Jesus telling people to follow him. We see some of the first responses from Simon and Andrew and James and John. So that's kind of how we're, I'm going to break this up and go through each section here. Okay. So let's look at this first line. Mark 1, 1, he starts off kind of with almost like a mission statement, you can imagine. He's like, how am I going to encapsulate this? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So gospel, time mentioned before, um, means good news. It also could be joyful tidings, things like that. Um, Christ says the, gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, now, a lot of people don't know this. Christ is not a last name, right? It's not like... First name, last name, filling out a, a, a form online, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title given to him. And a lot of times we say it together because we're identifying who he is. goes back to the word for Messiah in Hebrew, anointed one, chosen one. Um, it could also be read, this, this sentence could also be read kind of like, the good news concerns Jesus Christ. It's about him, but it begins with John. That makes a lot of sense, right? Because next phrase we go and we... Or, well, a couple of verses later, we have John enter the picture, right? Already in this first statement, we have a claim of deity, son of God, right? Now, the title son doesn't necessarily infer, Jesus, like, I have a son, Judah, and at one point, Judah uh, didn't exist, and at another point, he did exist. It doesn't imply that, but I think it really reply, uh, it implies this distinctness from God the Father, but also this relational closeness that they have. Like, that's a really special, close uh, relationship. And there's a lot more you could go on in that as well, but it's a claim of deity right from the beginning. Next, Mark draws, this is probably my, my favorite or maybe second favorite section. Let's see here. Whoops. Did I go too far? Nope. Uh, 
the, these prophecies that Mark draws our attention to are really, really cool. Made roughly about 700 years uh, prior, and it's Isaiah. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So he's saying this gospel, this Jesus Christ was prophesied before. Uh, or the, me- the mess- specifically, he's talking about the messenger that's going to go before uh, the Messiah. So he says, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, this is so cool. Actually, what Mark is doing is he's taking two prophecies from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, and he put them together to talk about the same figure that's coming. Uh, The first one, I think I have a slide. Yeah. The first one, I included some of the the, uh, text before and after, so you can get a little bit of a feel for the context of this passage. So he's pulling in from Malachi chapter 3. So going back a little bit into two, you have wearied uh, Yahweh with your words, but but you say, how have we wearied him? By asking, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. So that would clearly, you know, that would... Uh, God would not like that, right? Uh, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And then this is how he responds. This is how God, Yahweh, responds to uh, this phrase. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, is what it says in Malachi. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because who's speaking? Yeah, and specifically Yahweh is speaking. He's saying, he will prepare the way before me. Okay, that's really interesting. That should get our attention. It's like Yahweh's coming, and there's going to be a messenger that goes before him. Um, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Wow, so that's really, that's really big time, isn't it? It's not just some, some dude coming. There's like uh, Yahweh is coming. And there's a very similar uh, way that Mark handles uh, Isaiah 40. Let's look at this one. So he, Mark gives the one from Malachi 3, then he gives Isaiah 40. Uh, again, I put in some text before and after. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain... And he'll be made low. The uneven ground shall be made level, and a rough place is the plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's, kind of doing, he's doing the same thing. He said, There's going to be a voice in the wilderness crying, Prepare the way of Yahweh. A lot of times in English, uh, Tad mentioned this before, but I thought it'd be helpful. A lot of times Lord, the word Lord kind of loses its meaning because we just think kind of master. Or something, but in the Septuagint, the translation from Hebrew into Greek of the Old Testament, Lord is used for God's personal name, Yahweh, in a lot of places. Um, so both of these are clearly saying Yahweh's coming and there's a messenger coming before him. So this is like, this is big time. This is big time. Uh, this is kind of a side note issue, but at least for me, it, it concerned me when I first read this that it seems like Mark is saying both of those prophecies are from Isaiah, doesn't it? It's like, Isaiah, and then he has Malachi and Isaiah. Well, did Mark get it wrong? Um, so I don't know if that concerns you, but it did for me. Um, there's a couple explanations for this. Um, one of them is uh, some of the some of the texts or the copies that we have, that word is actually prophets instead of Isaiah. It might actually say that in your Bible. 
Some, so Mark would say, according, according to the prophets, these two prophecies. That's a possibility. Uh, Isaiah could be a way just to refer to the prophetic voice as a whole. Uh, but what's actually compelling to me is it was, all, it was also common to take two sayings from two different sources, quote them, and then cite the major source only. That was a common practice, and that seems to be what Mark is doing. So if anyone tries to use that as an argument against you, now you, now you know. There's some explanations for it. So, so anyway, who is this messenger? He's saying there's a messenger coming, and Mark clearly shows us who it is, because John comes right into the scene right here, right? So it's pretty clear John's the messenger that's preparing a way. So next slide. Yeah, John. so it says John appeared. So it's literally like as a fulfillment to those prophecies. It's really cool, isn't it? I think this is awesome. So John appeared, bam, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And everyone's going out to him from Judea, Jerusalem, to be baptized, confessing their sins. He's all, it also mentions he's clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt, ate a locust and wild honey, which, yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and, and here's what he preached after me. So he's all about the person coming after him. After me comes he who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to, un, to, to stoop down and untie his chaco, right? I've baptized you with water, but he's going to baptize you with his spirit. So I'm doing something that's pointing you to the one that's coming after me, right? John was all about Jesus, the one coming after him. He, his baptism was readying people for the coming sac, uh, sacrifice and what Jesus was going to do after that. I love in Acts uh, 19, Paul says this. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. That's what John was about, right? And I actually wanted to, I was going to go into some of the more details about what John did. It, there's a lot more information about John and, and his ministry and some of the other gospels. But I think this is really interesting. Uh, from the book of John, chapter 5, um, Jesus is talking about the things that validated him and his ministry. And I thought that would be cool to bring in here. So I don't, I don't think I have it on the screen, but if you go to John 5, I'm going to start in 32. Jesus is talking. He's being questioned. And he says, there's another who testifies about me, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John. So he's talking about John. And he testified to the truth. Even though I don't accept human testimony, I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And you were willing for a season to bask in the light, but I have testimony more substantial than even John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish or the very works that I'm doing testify about me that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word abide in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me. So I think this is really interesting because Jesus in this passage is giving like four big things that testify about him. He's saying him and his works testify who he is. John testified who he is. The father testified who he is and the, the scriptures testify who he is. And I wanted to bring that in because we have three of those showing up in this very section today. Uh, John, the father and scripture all testifying to who Jesus is. Um, and later in Mark 1, it goes more into his works that also validate and testify to who he is. But all, all of those, right in Mark chapter 1. It's really, it's really cool. Uh, back to John the Baptist. <laughs> um, 
there's yeah i think i'm gonna move on a little quicker here because there's so many things i could get into but a couple points about john the baptist jesus called him one of the greatest prophets of all time and i think one of the like his humility made him one of the greatest prophets of all time but also the person he was preparing a way for big time he's preparing a way for god he's preparing a way for jesus um it's also interesting to note jesus was his cousin right he's a very humble man pointing to jesus so it kind of adds a little extra dimension there, uh, similar to James, the brother of Jesus, validating Jesus in his uh, in his letter to James, which a lot of you memorize. It's kind of interesting, right? That um, like if your cousin came and was like, "I'm I'm the prophesied one," and you're like, "Yeah, right," you know, unless unless you're 100 sure that's the case, right? Um, and then Jesus even said he was the prophesied Elijah figure, prophesied in Malachi four that there's going to be this figure who comes. Um, so a lot of a lot of cool stuff about John the Baptist. I kind of wanted to move move on, but anyways, John's that prophesied messenger that's coming, that's preparing a way, and then here comes the one who he's preparing a way for. Right next in, in the next verse, chapter uh, verse nine, where God the Father identifies uh, Jesus. So Mark one nine through eleven. In those days, Jesus. So it goes John, and then to Jesus. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So again, I'm kind of flying, I'm kind of skipping through some of these things because there's a lot here, but a lot can be said about Jesus being baptized and this being a great defense of the Trinity. Um, You have the Holy Spirit, the son and the father all right there present at the same time. Um, but I mostly want to focus on that proclamation. God, the father said, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's really like God's stamp of approval. He's validating Jesus, uh, to other people. And again, we have those three right in this first chunk scripture, Jesus, uh, John and God, the father. So this is God, the father testifying. Um, so next, uh, we're going to go into Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. So the spirit Again, we get uh, Mark just, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. It makes you think he got up out of the water and then he's like, bam, in the wilderness being tested, which could have, could have happened. He is in the wilderness uh, 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, kind of an interesting detail. <laughs> um, and the angels were ministering to him. And we know from other uh, gospels that a lot happened, like Matthew really goes and explains all the different temptations, how Jesus handled it. He very clearly refuted the temptations of the devil. How? By scripture, by saying it is written. And that's a, that's a big motivation for us that we should know God's word like that. Like David, that we could say, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Right? Yeah. But I want to bring up something I thought was really interesting as I studied this. There's the, there really is this theme of wilderness in the first section of Mark. Um, there's a voice crying in the wilderness. There's uh, John appearing in the wilderness. There's John's garb. It's like wilderness garb. It's kind of you know scratchy and itchy. And uh, Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be uh, baptized by John. John uh, G- uh, Jesus gets uh, he's tempted in the wilderness for forty days. So it's like this kind of this theme, and it, it's like well maybe Mark's trying to make something of this. Here's what I think it is. I think he's bringing this attention to wilderness for a reason. Uh, there's this, do you, do you remember what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years? Anyone? Yeah, they, they sinned. They couldn't go into the promised land uh, because of their sin. And so I, I think it's possible Mark's trying to get their minds kind of back to that state. 
that their situation right now is very, very similar to what it was back then. And it makes a lot of sense in the flow of the passage because what's, what is John and Jesus calling them to do? Like realize, recognize their position, humble themselves, turn and repent. It's like, you're just as bad as the Israelites back then who were in the wilderness. Come out to the wilderness, realize, recognize your position, humble yourself and get right with God because the Messiah is coming. Um, so I think, I think that's what it's uh, pointing to. Kind of a cool illusion, I think. A text, like a, a, a textual illusion in the Bible there. Um, so Jesus tested and tempted in the wilderness, overcomes those temptations by the word of God, and then he goes out and starts his ministry. We get that right in the next verse. There we go. Uh, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Um, who, who kind of remembers where the Galilee region is? If you did the walk through the Bible, you've got Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Galilee is this region kind of around the Sea of Galilee. It's north of Judea. So he goes there and he's proclaiming the time is fulfilled. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I think this is really cool because uh, gospel, like we said, means good news, but he's specifically saying this is the good news uh, of God. This is God's good news. It's not just anybody's good news. Good news. It's not the good news you got the present that you wanted this year or something like that. This is God's good news. Um, it's very specific. And then he says the time is at hand. Well, what time is that? Well, some of this points back to some of those prophecies, right, that came at the beginning. This time that was prophesied is at hand. Over the years and years, there's this messianic expectation that built up in God's people as like different uh, pieces of the puzzle were added to who this figure would be. And that's like that's like a whole other topic. Um, but he's saying all that was pointing up to this time, and now it's here. And then he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, or that it's near. Well, what is that? Uh, kingdom of God, big theme in some of the other gospels as well. Uh, have you ever, ever asked yourself, um, man, what is that? What is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Um, I think you could go into that a lot as well. But simply, if I had to state it, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus, both in your life and around you. And so there's this dynamic that when you give your life to Jesus, you surrender everything. That's his will happening in your life. And now he's able to use you more to bring about his kingdom to those around you. Right? So that's his kingdom coming here. And it's brought about by Jesus coming and dying on the cross. Um, but there is this concept in which it's not yet fully here yet. It's like, it's here, it's available, it's in our midst, we're seeing it around us, but it's already here, but it's not yet fully accomplished. Jesus hasn't come and defeated uh, the final vic and, uh, sin and death uh, once and for all. Um, he, and so at the end, he was going to come and that's going to totally be fulfilled. He's going to be on his throne. And um, yeah, so that's, again, another huge thing we could go into. So um, Jesus said the appropriate response to this uh, was repentance. Repent and believe this good news. That's the appropriate response. And I think this message totally extends to us today. If you haven't repented and believed in the gospel and surrendered all to Jesus, to see he's, who he is, that he's prophesied of old, that he was testified of John and God the Father, the appropriate response is to turn from your life of sin and give it, give it all to Jesus. Surrender everything to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life, like, like Ty was talking about, the, the gospel. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so we always, I think we always, even though it's something that we hear a lot, we want to make sure people know that. If you haven't done that, um, that's that's one of the reasons we're here. Come talk to somebody. Uh, you got to get your relationship with God right. 
So that's the message he's teaching. And then we see the first response of some of the disciples. This is really cool. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So that makes sense, right? And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So it's, it's possible that some of these guys had already heard about who Jesus was. They'd already seen some things. And so they see him coming. He asks them to follow him, and they immediately just get up and go. And that's kind of crazy if you think about it, right? It really is. Um, it, it's kind of like this. I think sometimes it helps us to envision it in our modern world. Like imagine you're sitting in your cubicle doing your work. Maybe you had read a little bit about this guy who was coming to claim he was the promised one of old. Maybe, maybe not. And he walks in, looks at you and says, follow me. What would you do? Right? Probably be like, I've got work to do, man. Like I'm on the clock, dude. Right? I, I don't know if my response would be like them. I, w- I want it to be like them. Right? But this is, this is really what I wanted to end with, the big kind of teaching thing. Uh, as we went through Mark, the big teaching thing is part of obedience is doing it when God told you to do it. That's that's huge. Um, it's like if, w- when you were a kid, if your mom told you to clean the room and you're like, oh yeah, mom, I'll do it. And, and you're thinking I'm going to do it like next week. It's like, no, your mom told you to do it now. And part of obedience is doing the thing, but doing it now. And so we see that these first disciples, they immediately obeyed Jesus right then, right there. So is there something in your life like the disciples, you need to uh, hear from Jesus and do it right away, whether it's forgiving someone, following him for the first time, giving a gift to someone to bless them. Uh, for me, a thing I realized, I mentioned this at prayer, I think, um, I was uh, I was getting my time with the Lord in. I knew God wanted me to wake up at five. A lot of time I was bumping that because I was just tired. Sometimes I was sick. And it was kind of a, it seems so simple, doesn't it? But it was kind of a like, oh, Wow, part of me obeying God is actually doing it when he wants me to. And that freeze got up to do other things in your life. Because I was like, oh, I'm getting my time in other places. I'm making it a priority. I'm obeying. But just like, no, I'm not obeying fully, right? And so I want to challenge you. What is, what is that in your life? What do you need to obey God completely on time? Things like that. Because I think when we truly understand how loving he is, we have no valid reason for not giving him everything, right? Like this is the best possible thing for the disciples to to follow Jesus for their whole life. And it's, it's interesting. Like, it seems like they just left their boats just there. And uh, James and John left their dad with the hired servants in the boat, right? You can imagine um, there's thoughts going on in their head. Like, what are these people, what are they thinking of me? Like, what's my dad thinking of me? I'm just, I'm just jumping out of the work. What are these hired servants thinking of me? Right? So there's something to be said there too about the opinion of God, caring more about the opinion of God than caring about the opinion of of man and the people around you. There's always going to be people that, that think uh, that the people around you, there's always going to be people who think you should be doing something else than what God wants you to do. Um, and you have to, uh, but we're called to obey God, not, not man. So again, theme, I'm going to just wrap it up here. The theme, uh, who, who do you say Jesus is? What are you going to do about it? Um, the whole book of Mark is talking about that. And that first chunk, I really think focus on that. There's something Jesus 
is telling you to do. Maybe it's following him for the first time. Maybe it's giving up something. Maybe it's forgiving someone. He really is loving, and it's the best for you to do that. So I want us to be a church that that quickly uh, obeys God uh, and does it when He wants us to, and doesn't doesn't push things off. So that God can bless us and use us. Um, yeah. Well, that's all I have. I love you guys. Uh, maybe I'll close this in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for this message. Um, and yeah, I just pray, Lord, that you would make us all people that are just so easily movable by you, like moldable clay, that you can you can turn us into anything you want. You can tell us to do anything you want, and we'll do it right then and there. We won't push it off. We'll be like those disciples who just immediately obeyed you. God, help us see you as you really are. Thank you, Jesus, for these words that you were prophesied of old, that you're testified by John the Baptist and uh, God the Father, and we thank you for that. That is so amazing. Um, and we just want to honor and glorify you um, for being that Messiah, for being that person that has saved us. Um, Lord, we thank you so much for that. Lift your name up on high in Jesus' name. Amen.